This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Wrestling Omakase. It is episode number 241. And this week, for the final episode of 2021, uh, I am joined by the 2021 MVP, it is Jerry. Hello, Jerry. Oh, most valuable podcaster. You shouldn't have. <laughs> well, you definitely you, you beat everybody in quantity, that is for sure. I okay, keep, I'll accept that. <laughs> I, keep the, I keep the list, and this is your, one, let me say, one, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. This is your 10th appearance of the year. I think that's Wow, I hit I hit double digits. Yeah, I think that's the first time anyone's ever done. The, the Magic Writing Girl is the Magic Podcast Girl now. <laughs> Fantastic. Double digit appearances. It, it's been a little bit. I think the last time we had you on here was the G1 Climax Final. So that was episode 236, which I guess doesn't, it's only, it doesn't sound that many because it's only five episodes before. But since we moved to every other week now, it is actually kind of a ways back. So yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah. So two thirty. So this is your tenth episode, and you're here for the Tokyo Dome Retro Roulette Volume Three, uh, which we'll get into in a second. But what's been going on, Jerry, since you were last on? Anything? Oh, made? you know, um, you know, we had Christmas. Um, went surprisingly well. I was so dreading Christmas this year, and then it turned out to be not something to dread at all, which. It's both good, but also kind of an emotional release because you're stressing so hard and everything turns out well. And you're like, oh, God. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, I was stressing for no reason. Thank goodness. <laughs> oh, that's how I feel with my flight next week. But anyway. Yeah. Like... my um, just, just, just a quick sneak peek in my personal life. My grandma saw me for the first time in two years. She has never seen me as a woman. Um, and she. That's, um, a big, that's a big deal, then. Yeah. And she completely was good with it. Yeah. So. She her exact words were, "Well, this explains why you never fit in with the boys." Yeah, it's like I think. Thanks. I mean, yes, thanks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're correct. <laughs> but um, other than that, um, just you know, just trying to get the New Year's. I got a big New Year's weekend. Well, yeah, still a big New Year's weekend. One thing got canceled, but everything else is still on par to go on go ahead. So I'm excited for New Year's weekend. Yeah, and... I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to go to a New Year's Eve party, but. But just like a small like house gathering, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of thinking of not going if it if it happens because like, you know, as people probably heard, there's a lot of Omicron 
around yeah. here in the tri-state area. And it's more just, it, I'm not worried about the party itself because everybody there is boosted and vaccinated yeah. and they're, you know, I don't think it would be a big deal. But what I'm more worried about is the train rides there and back, you know, and yeah. transit where, you know, besides the fact that you don't know the vaccination status for everybody on the train, I mean, lots of people, they're supposed to wear their masks, but they, a lot of people don't, I've noticed yeah. on the transit. So, you know, and I have a flight two days later to Vegas for, you know, my, my Vegas trip I'm looking forward to, which I'm still going on as of now, which I know people listening to this might think that's crazy, but I've been looking forward to that trip for so long. Uh, I'm supposed to see two hockey games if they actually happen. I'm planning to go. So unless they suddenly announce that uh, everything is closed down between now and January 2nd, I am going on that trip. So I think you're good to go. Yeah. I mean, I'm not you, might, really... you might just have to jump through some hoops, but you're good to go. There's less. It seems like there's less Omicron there than there is here, if anything. <laughs> so and, yeah. I, and, and I'm really I'm, I'm still not that worried about getting this virus. I mean, I already had the virus. And at this point, I'm vaccinated and boosted. And I feel like, you know, if I get yeah. it, it can't it can't possibly be that. Yeah, bad. I'm actually yeah, I'm not that worried about the virus. I mean, I'm not worried about myself for the virus. Exactly. Word that um, I'm boosted. I'm double vaxxed. Um, I wouldn't I go masked. around any. I wouldn't go any around any older family members without taking a test for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's why I did when I went to see my dad this past mm-hmm. week. I took a rapid test. So I'm, you know, I'm more worried about them than I am about myself. I'm not. I, I tried to take a test before Christmas and then they canceled on me. Oh yeah. Wow. They called me to like, sorry, we can't do your test. I'm like, oh, that doesn't help at all. (laughs) (laughs) We happened to find, um, like these, these rapid tests in stock, you know, we found five of them. So yeah, that, that helped a lot. Yeah. But I'm not worried about new year's because a, I'm driving there because, I have to drive everywhere I where I live, and once I get there, I'm pretty much staying there. I ain't leaving until Sunday afternoon, probably. So mm-hmm. it's like it's like you're stuck. With, you're stuck with me. Sorry, you invited me. You invited me in. This is what you have to deal with now. <laughs> this is this is on you from this point on. I'm gonna eat all your food, drink all your tea, and probably leave a mess on your couch. I'm sorry. This is what <laughs> happens when you invite me in your house. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm very excited for my trip, assuming I go, uh, I, like, like I said, I've never been to Las Vegas, even though hmm. I do enjoy, the, I do enjoy gambling as long time listeners will know, but, uh, I've done almost all my gambling in Atlantic city, not Vegas. So yeah. first, have you ever been to Vegas, Jerry or no? No, I actually might, if, if double or nothing's in Vegas again this year, I might try to go. I was thinking about it too. I could get pretty good rates for that weekend. Cause, uh, again, I'm a, I'm a dumbass gambler and I have, you know, yeah. uh, yeah, I have history with it, with the MGM group from the, cause oh, they, own okay. Borgata, they own Borgata in Lake city. So yep. like when you have a player history, you can get like, you know, yeah. rooms and cheap rates and stuff. Yeah. I am very scared of gambling for two reasons. <laughs> One, a, I'm obsessive compulsive. Uh-huh. And that just does not seem like it should go with gambling. And secondly, when I went to see GC, when I went to see Moxley Gage, I stepped on a gamble. I stepped on a casino floor for five minutes and freaked out <laughs> because my I I oh sorry my cat my cat just woke up just to attack me. Um, I have ADHD. I'm on the autism spectrum, and I have anxiety disorder, sensory overload to the max. See, I, it's interesting because I I have pretty pretty goddamn bad ADHD too, and I've always heard that when it comes to ADHD, like if anything that makes us 
maybe you know I don't the other stuff I don't know but for ADHD I've always heard that makes us more susceptible to casinos if anything because like the bright lights are like very like oh look at that look at that look at that like it's very much like you know it really keep it, it can keep our attention in a way yeah that's well, other stuff can't I think but, the best way I can describe it is the ADHD part of me was attracted it's like ooh shiny lights and colors yeah. then I stepped on the floor and the anxiety and autism part of me was like oh my god shiny lights and colors <laughs> you know. It's like yeah. I'm trapped. Like it's like I get lured, and then it's like, haha, we got you now. It's like no. So I'm pretty sure I stepped only five feet in, but it felt like five miles. Like I yeah. turned around, the exit was right in front of me, and I couldn't find it. It's like, where's the exit? Where's the exit? It's like you idiot. It's over there. Just take yeah. two steps, and you're off the casino floor. But it's so far away. Yeah. But then I went uh, to a delicious Japanese restaurant. And it was okay. Oh yeah, that was the one I recommended, right? Yes, yeah, so it was. You 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 did right by me. Yeah, it's it was awesome. It's yeah, awesome. It was my it was my first sake. Oh yeah, that's, that's it, cool I, too. It had an eight ounce carafe of sake. I was feeling really good. Yeah, thank I goodness. Imagine, I, if you drink that all by yourself, I can imagine you were feeling. I really did good. drink it all by myself. I wasn't gonna <laughs> let any sake go to waste. Um, but no, I'm just saying, usually usually people split that with somebody. Else. No, I or like the waiter didn't even try to stop me. The waiter's like, "Oh, you want eight ounces? I'm gonna give you eight ounces, all right." And <laughs> drink it, drink it, and thank goodness, like thank goodness, I was doing lifts all weekend. Let's just say that. Um, Borgata, you and I were both drunk recently in the same casino, then because Borgata is where when I went to Atlantic State to see Lewis Black uh, last month, and you know the the B bar. At Borgata, when you ask them for tequila, like a shot of tequila, they are like, here is a cup with like eight shots of tequila. Here you go. <laughs> and, then, and, this, and this is and this is free, by the way, because you're gam- you're playing video poker. They give it yep. to you. But yeah, so they give you like eight fucking eight shots. I did that three times. So I was feeling pretty damn good by the, by the third one. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, they have a very interesting definition of a shot. That's pretty, pretty funny. Yeah. I can usually tell if I'm drunk, if I start asking people, if I'm pretty, mm. that's usually what happens. That's usually when my friends cut me off. It's like, Jerry, you're asked if I'm pretty five times. <laughs> it's time to stop drinking. Unfortunately, I didn't have anyone I trusted to ask if I was pretty. So I didn't have a gauge this time, but I was feeling quite good. Yeah. I was quite buzzed for gauge Moxley. Let's just put it that way. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, so you know, definitely, uh, definitely glad you enjoyed Lake City. I guess I'm going back there for the AW show in uh, February. I know, okay. I, think it, I think it's February 9th. I think I could have that date wrong, but we did buy tickets to that, so yep. yeah, I will be there for that. And you know, yep. somebody actually, I don't know if I should offer anybody a crash on my. I have a free hotel room, so. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's always nice. Yeah. yeah. I might go back to Atlantic City one day. It's just next time I go to Atlantic City, I'll stay in an actual hotel. Yeah, I, I wouldn't stay off. I, I, I was. Oh, day. gosh. Wait, this, um, this, I'll just make this real quick to show my inexperience in my n- state of travel naiveness. Let's just put it that way. I had no idea what I was getting into when I got to my Airbnb. I wrote yeah. about it in my article, so I won't recap it. But, oh, gosh, my anxiety. Like. Not, I'm trying to word this correctly. When you're a trans person, sometimes you get in certain areas and something screams at you, you should not be here. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what screamed at me in my area for two days was, Jerry, this was a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something mean, could true. possibly happen to you here. Yeah, I, I don't even think it's a trans only thing. I just think in general. Yeah, you know, I know, but I'm just I saying would, in general. No, right, 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 no, right. I get what you're saying. I'm just saying for people listening, like in general, yeah. I would not recommend 
staying at uh, like staying away from either the board. It doesn't have to be a casino hotel. There's lots of non-casino yeah. hotels too, but you should st- generally stay like right along the boardwalk, right by the convention center, or uh, in, by the the marina. You know, hotels. I would not. It's not even like either hotel or non-hotel. I just wouldn't stay like uh, like once you get further up the highway, it gets kind of sketchy with all those like very sketchy motels, and especially the other parts of the actual city that aren't along the boardwalk or the marina area yeah. are really sketchy. So yeah, and I was only a two minute walk to the boardwalk, but my area was just still far enough from the boardwalk to be. Yeah. Like when I say, when I say boardwalk, I mean literally on the boardwalk. Okay. I understand. I understand. <laughs> but like, like once I get to the boardwalk, it's like, I breathe. Yeah. And then, then it's like, Oh shit, I got to walk back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But like, but my Airbnb itself was nice. My hostess was sweet, kind. She was way more optimistic than she had any right to be. She's mm-hmm. like, I walk in. She's like, oh, you came here. Have snacks. Have water. This is a lovely neighborhood, isn't it? It's like, it's great. <laughs> there's a there's like a street preacher preaching about Jesus for four hours next to the person getting their ass kicked. This is a fantastic part of town. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it, yeah. I don't know. Just <laughs> but, 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 let, me, let me be clear. Despite all, despite the anxiety, despite that my car was broken into, despite all that, I did have a good time in Atlantic City. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, it's just, it's just, it's going to be a while before I go back. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair. Especially with the car breaking, broken into bar. I've never, I will say I've been there a million times. I've never had a car broken into, but I yeah. always park in the casino parking garage. Yeah. Like, like, let me be clear. I, I was unlucky. I, yeah. I locked my car and my door apparently popped back open. Oh uh, well, yeah, that'll do it. I guess nothing. And I did not know my door did that. Yeah. And I only lost three things. They were all replaceable. Nothing of, Major importance other than maybe my GPS, which make going home so much fun. Yeah, um, I and my, I lost my trans pride hoodie, which I replaced. And I lost a um, custom mug, which I got a replacement for Christmas and it made me cry. Oh, and I'm still mad at my friend for making me cry. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there you go. That was eventful at least. Yes. Um, but yeah, I get, the only thing I want to mention before we get into the episode, uh, obviously the awards are coming up. So Normally we do every other week, but we will be back next Saturday, uh, January 1st. I guess now this Saturday, January 1st, uh, the annual awards episode, which pretty much just the only time I can record them before I leave for my trip the next day. Fair. Uh, so yes, January 1st is the awards episode. If you're listening to this and you were a guest in 2021 and you have not yet filled out your ballot, you have until January 1st, until I think 3 p.m. Please make sure you fill out your ballot. <laughs> Still a bunch of ballots missing. Not not the person on this episode. Jerry filled hers out. But a I'm lot a of people have, exactly. A lot of people have not filled those out yet. So yes, if you were a guest this year, I'm gonna send another reminder, you know. I would actually I was supposed to do it today and didn't do it. But I'm gonna send another reminder tomorrow. I might send one more on Friday too. <laughs> I, just, I just imagine your reminders getting more and more stern and threatening as it goes on. No, I don't get I don't get more stern and threatening, but I do send them so often I'm sure I annoy people. Per but my yes. last per my last email. <laughs> exactly. So please, if you've got a ballot, you have until Saturday to do, fill it out. And these awards are still ridiculously close, like especially even you know, usually by now someone ran away the rest of the year. This year I think it's exactly tied. So uh, you know, these are very close awards. I get why some people maybe not filling them out this year compared to previous years. I had a really hard time, you know, figuring out what the fuck to vote for this year too. Cause I think as I'll go into next, next week, I guess I thought this was like, I don't know, my least favorite year of wrestling and, you know, probably like 12 or 13 years. So it, 
it wasn't my least favorite year, but I realized how not diversified my wrestling was this year when I filled out my rewards. It's like, holy shit, I really did not expand my watching this year at all. I, yeah, I, I thought this year sucked really bad, but I'll get into all that, I guess, next week on the awards episode. Oh, so I um, won't be here for the downer episode. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure other people, look, I guess to give a little bit of a preview of it, if you absolutely love American wrestling, and you think AEW is like the greatest thing ever? Because I saw I saw people on Twitter being like, "Really? You thought this year was horrible?" I'm like, if you thought this year, if you love AEW, if you love American wrestling, I can totally see why you enjoyed 2021. Yep. I mean, AEW is just never. I, I thought they had a great year. I mean, I'm not going to say they. You know, I guess spoiler alert for who I'm going to vote for. Right. I, I, they they had a great year, especially a great half year from uh you know the second half on. Um, yeah, I think that's fair actually. But they're never going to be my favorite promotion. Weekly TV wrestling is never going to be my favorite style of wrestling. It just—it's just not. It's just not what I'm into. Yeah. And the Japanese wrestling companies, I thought, largely had a pretty, like, forgettable to bad year. And that's—and that's your usually your jam. And that's—and that's my jam. So you know, everything I was really into, and obviously people could just see it as the year went on. I think just from uh, you know listening to the show, just I, I just could not get into anything this year when it came to Japanese wrestling, and you know, I felt like everything was off. And the the clap crowds really started to grade on me by the end of the year. You know, by the I fall. I got that. Really. Yeah. So yeah. I just I hated this year. I thought this year was pretty horrible, uh, with few exceptions. And uh, I'm hoping for better from 2022. Yeah. The you know. last thing I'll say before we get into it is my Japan trip was canceled, and I I mean I was disappointed. I also felt a weird sense of relief. Yeah, because who wants to sit through clap crowds? I mean, exactly. It's yeah. it's odd. Like I really do want to go. Um, I'm probably not going to try again next year because I have no idea what the f- fuck 2022 is going to look like. Yeah. And I'm tired of trying to predict what I honestly. Th- and look, this is where I this is where I have a hard time being optimist because every time I try to be an optimist, it bites me. It seems when the vaccine came out at the end of 2020, I thought, OK, yeah. by 2022, I should be able to go back overseas again. Yeah. And then I completely did not estimate how many people would not rush to get the vaccine so so i got when i got when i bought my japan ticket i was really optimistic everything was not go fast but would get itself in order in enough time for me to go i can't put myself through that again yeah that's very fair i mean you know i i'm i kind of you know it kind of feels like you know, Omicron could be the beginning of the end, but they could just be like, oh, here's another fucking variant that's way worse and, you know, spreads just as fast, but is five times as deadly. Enjoy. So, like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, like, here's, here's, the, here's, here's the Galvatron variant. Have fun. Yeah, yeah, we start, we're going to start doing Transformer names now. Enjoy. I mean, I just really, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to tell with this fucking pandemic when it will ever end. So, yeah. you know, hopefully I can go to Japan at the end of 2022. I'm not exactly uh, holding my breath, you yeah. know. 2023 is my aim, and that could flex by yeah. whatever. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into, on that very happy note, let's get We're into, so cheerful on this podcast, folks. You can feel the cheerful. smile radiating from my face. The actual topic we're going to talk about, which is <laughs> Tokyo, Tokyo Dome Retro Roulette Volume 3. So, for people who don't listen to Volumes 1 and 2, uh, the idea here is, much like the other Retro Roulettes, we pick six random shows, and then from each one, we pick a random match. Now, the thing is, I, I do this one a little bit differently compared to the ones like, you know, 
like the ones you've heard recently, like the Survivor series and uh, you know, especially the ones where, where it's repeated, like the uh the Halloween Havoc, I think was volume two. When for those shows, I would I would be fine with picking the same show again a second time because it's like there's only like what 15 of them or whatever, and I would just pick a different match. Here, since we're doing every single Tokyo Dome show in history, not just New Japan, not just January 4th, I have every single Tokyo Dome show in history. I took out any of the ones we covered in the past two episodes. So, you know, no repeats, whatever the six shows are talking about here, you know, have to be a different six shows than the ones we covered on volumes one and two. Obviously, we're doing this, though, because uh, Wrestle Kingdom is coming up shortly. So this is to help get ready for the Tokyo Dome. Now, um, the six shows we got here did end up all being New Japan. I think that's the first time that's happened uh, in this series. And a bunch of them were January 4th shows. Not all of them, but I think four out of six were. So, you know, you can see kind of both the evolution of New Japan, the evolution of the Tokyo Dome, you know, as we go along. The other thing I should mention is, um, well, I guess a couple things about the actual match selection. Uh, I do not include the main events. This is because, you know, I have a series on the Omakase Patreon, which I know is on pause right now, but the series is still there to listen to, where we covered every main event up through the end of the 1990s. So if you want to hear me talk about the main event of any of these shows up through the 90s, all you got to do in very, very, in a lot of detail too, and a lot more on the, the show itself too. Uh, even though the Patreon is on hold and you do not get charged automatically each month because I'm not doing new con- new content right now, you can still sign up right now and still pay the $5 and you can still, you know, get access to the entire archive that includes every single Tokyo Dome main event for the entire 1990s. Again, not just New Japan, not just uh, January 4th, every single Dome main event uh, in great detail. So that's at patreon.com slash wrestling uh, I'm not, you know, link's not in the pro description anymore because, uh, you know, it's not active, but it is, pay- maybe I'll put it in just for this episode since it kind of ties in. But yeah, it's at patreon.com slash wrestling say five bucks and you get the entire archive uh, of, you know, the Tokyo Domain events. And, you know, you don't get, you, you won't get charged $5 automatically at the start of the month, uh, the start of January, since I'm not doing new content right now. And I will give you plenty of advance notice you know, whenever I do start to re- decide to restart the Patreon. I assume it probably won't be till like March or April at the earliest. Uh, but yeah, I did include the main events, obviously, for the 90s shows since I covered them already. I didn't include them for the uh, newer shows either because, like, at some point I'm going to complete that series. If I restart the Patreon just to do the rest of the Tokyo Dome main events and nothing else, uh, you know, that's very possible. I really want to complete that series. I had a lot of fun doing that series. Uh, you know, and following along the Tokyo Dome each time. So I did want to mention that. So that's why we have no main events here. They were not eligible. Uh, the other reason why we picked, you know, six different shows than the shows we did in the past on past episodes is because for some of these shows, you can't find anything but a couple matches, right? So, you know, there's a lot of shows on New Japan World that only have one or two matches, especially the non-January 4th ones. Uh, then there's other shows where you can find, like, you can find like some stuff online, like, you know, we found the Savage Tenzon match on YouTube that wasn't on uh, New Japan World. But, you know, for the most part, it's New Japan World or nothing for the New Japan shows. And, you know, they don't have a rematch. So that's another reason why we don't do repeat shows. Like for some of these, it's like you you get the random randomly selected show. And then at that point, you have basically like, you know, two or three matches to choose from. And one is the main event that, uh you know, <laughs> we, we, we're not, as I just mentioned, we're not covering. So... 
Uh, that's my long-winded explanation for why we pick six different shows and no repeats. Okay. Uh, the first show we covered here, and we're doing these in chronological order, obviously, uh, was the New Japan Fantastic Story in Tokyo Dome. That was on January 4th, 1993. Not the first ever New Japan uh, January 4th show, I don't think. I should look that up first, but let me see. I think that might have been 91. Yeah, I think it was 91. I think that's correct. But uh, let's I know some things. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) But yeah, let's just see. Uh, Okay, why can I not find it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, January Work Tome Show. Yes, the first one was okay. You were very close. Ninety-two. Oh, fine. So it was <laughs> Super Warriors in Tokyo Dome, January fourth, ninety-two was the first one. Uh, so this is the second January fourth uh, Tokyo Dome show. So they've run it every year since ninety-two. Uh, this one did a claimed attendance of sixty-three thousand five hundred. Uh, as we've been over on these Tokyo Dome shows in the past, those attendance numbers are complete bullshit. They can't, you know, the actual attendance you can do in the Tokyo Dome. Uh, you know, with everything open, outfield and everything, probably around 42,000, I want to say. Um, I'm trying to think what's the greatest number that New Japan has claimed in the uh, in the current era, right? Uh, I think for four, for 13, for Wrestle Kingdom 13, I think they said 40,000. Let me say. The audacity uh, of claiming wrestling attendance. Yeah, okay, so we're... Well, the, these one so New Japan started re- reporting real numbers in, uh, I believe, 2015 or 2016. Uh, so the Wrestle Kingdom 13 did 38,162, and then they beat it with night one of. Okay, so the, the biggest attendance New Japan has had in the you know real numbers era is night one of Wrestle Kingdom 14 did 40,008 people, so 40,008. Um, I've heard them. I've heard people say that that's not like the absolute maximum you could do, that they st- there still were some like outfield seats they didn't open. So let's just say that the real maximum attendance is 42, 43, something around there. Uh, so whenever you hear like 62, five, it was probably like 42 or 43,000. Like that's probably what they had in there. Um, I know for the Inoki, the final show in 98, they really were jamming so many people in there to the point where... You know, the, there's people who were at the show that say it broke the fire code. So they probably had like 45,000 or something. They, they were literally people in the aisleways, apparently, for, you know, Inoki's retirement show. Jesus. So like, yeah, they, they were like, if there was a fire, everybody was going to die at that show. I mean, for, they probably did have like 45,000 or more in, in there. But yeah, that's probably the real max capacity, you know, not counting Inoki and his uh, fire trap of a show. Probably, <laughs> probably around 42 or 43,000. Uh, but yeah, so the card here, and we'll go through the whole card, and then I'll let you know, of course, which match we got. Uh, the opener was El Samurai, Akira Nogami, and Takuya Izuka, uh, or uh, sorry, Takuyuki Izuka, defeating Koki Kitahara, Masao Orihara, and Nobukazu Hirai in fifteen eleven. Then we had the Heisei Ishingun, which we'll talk about them uh, in more detail a little bit later. Uh, Akatoshi Saito, Matsushi Aoyagi, Shiro Koshinaka, and the Great Kabuki. They beat Hiro Saito, Norio Honaga, Super Strong Machine, and Tatsutoshi Goto in 14-24. Match three, a match I would have loved to have gotten, but we did not get this one. Uh, Jushin Thunder Liger defeating Ultimo Dragon in 2009 uh, to win the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title. 
Uh, match four, Ron Simmons beats Tony Haume in 601. <laughs> not, not a match would have loved to have gotten. Uh, <laughs> match number five, Sting beats Hiroshi Hashi in 1531. That would have been an interesting one. Uh, then we have Masa Saito and Shinya Hashimoto beating Dustin Rhodes and Scott Norton. Wow. I wish they had gotten that match, honestly. 1357. Uh, then we have the match we did get, which was the double IWGP heavyweight title and NWA World Heavyweight title match. The Great Muda, the IWGP champion, defeats Masahiro Chono, the NWA World Heavyweight champion, in 1948 to win the belt. That was fourth from the top, despite being a double title match. Uh, then we had the IWGP tag titles. The Hellraisers, Hawk Warrior and Power Warrior. Uh, Hawk, of course, being Hawk from Legion of Doom and Power Warrior being Kensuke, being Kensuke Sasaki. They face the Steiner Brothers and they go to a double countout in 1438 uh, to retain the tag titles. A pretty famous match. Uh, a four-star rating from Dave Meltzer. So that would have been cool to say. Uh, semi-main event, Satsumi Fujinami beats Takashi Ishikawa in 1141. And the main event, a battle of Japanese wrestling legends. Genichiro Tenru defeats Ricky Choshu in 1814. And again, I can you can hear me talk about that made event on the Patreon. Um, anything you stand out there that you wish we would have got you would have gotten, Jerry? I really wish we gotten that Liger match. Yeah. Liger's yeah. my favorite wrestler of all time. I would have loved to have that match. There's a it got a three and three quarter from Dave, only a seven point one eight on cage match. So. I still would have loved it. Yeah, maybe it didn't hold up as well as some other stuff. Yeah, I would have loved the um the Power Warrior match also. Yeah, that would have been great. Uh, Steiners against Hawk Warrior and Power Warrior. Just just beefy wrestlers doing beefy things and throwing each other around. Uh, so the match we got here, it's basically the blow off for the NWA title in its brief little run as New Japan secondary belt. So Chono won the vacant title. August of 92, he won the second G1 Climax. Uh, he won the first one as well. So he won the first two G1s. He won the the inaugural G1 in 91. And then he won the 92 tournament, which was a single elimination tournament, believe it or not. A few times the G1 has been that, but this was the first time. Uh, he beat Rick Rude in the final to win the NWA title. Uh, Muto had been IWGP champion since August of 92 as well. So they both won their belts around the same time. Uh, Muto beat Ricky Choshu. Now, interestingly enough, this is the second straight year where New Japan was doing a double title match with the IWGP. Last year, Choshu was the greatest 18 club champion, and he beat Tatsumi Fujinami, the IWGP champion, on January 4th, 92. Uh, Choshu kind of defended both belts together, and then when Muto, as Great Muta, I should mention Great Great Muda in the Great Muda character. When Muda won both belts, he retired the greatest 18 club title. Now, this year, the IWGP title is in a double title match with a real world title, the NWA fucking title, which still was a big deal, especially in Japan at this point. I mean, that was the belt that was defended, you know, throughout the 80s in all Japan. Um, you know, instead of versus a fake title that Antonio Inoki made up. I mean, the greatest 18 club were his greatest 18 opponents, basically. That's what the greatest 18 club title... I shouldn't even say basically, that's what it was. It was like, you know, I have here's my greatest 18 opponents, and uh, here's a title to uh, memorialize that or something. But, you know, that match for, for with Anoki's fake title was a main event, and this one was fourth from the top. A little weird, but you're, you're still very early in the main event runs here of Chono and Muda, uh, whereas, you know, at the time... Ricky Choshu and Fujiyama are already legends, you know, that was a legendary feud too. So I guess it makes sense, even though the, the, uh, the, the titles on paper, it's, it's very funny to go from a greatest 18 club title to NWA world title. 
Um, there's also the original version of Masahiro Chono, you know, still a very clean cut babyface technician at this point. Always kind of funny to see that to me because obviously he's so more famous for the cool heel character, uh, which is still a ways away. I mean, we're in January of 93 at this point. Uh, he would, the, the cool heel character comes after he wins his third G1, his third G1 in four years in August of 94. And he turns heel because he's pissed off that Power Warrior, uh, again, Kensuke Sasaki, got a shot at the IWGP title before Chono, even though Chono won the G1. Frankly, that seems like a very valid complaint. <laughs> so I have to say, it's just kind of funny that his the, the start of this legendary heel character, this legendary anti-establishment character, was this very valid complaint, uh, you know, over this guy getting a title shot before him. You know, just kind of, even though he won the fucking G1. So I always found that funny. That that's what caused the heel turn. Um, but yeah, his, you know, he doesn't have the black tights or the sunglasses or anything here, obviously. He has green and white tights that give him a very weird, like, uh, you know, Misawa-esque look, right? So, uh, Muda, he spits some mist in the air before the match even starts. I guess it's just like, just trying to be intimidating. He's just like, I'll blind your ass <laughs> before the match even begins. <laughs> Uh, we, we start out this match with some light chain wrestling. Neither guy is really able to get an advantage. Uh, Muda ends up rolling to the floor after Chono kind of reverses a headlock into a head scissors. And then Muda stalls for a bit. Uh, back in the ring, we get a long headlock from Muda. And then something incredibly weird happens. So Muda, remember, he just had this guy in a fucking headlock. He rolls to the outside and he gets a fucking ice pick. Out from under the ring. What the fuck? They were just doing headlocks, and now all of a sudden, the great Muda is like, you know what I feel like doing? Murdering <laughs> my opponent with an ice pick. Uh, that certainly came out of nowhere. Great ref- amateur style wrestling. <laughs> the referee takes him, takes it away from him before he can even get back in the ring with it. And Muda apparently is like, you know what? The urge to do attempted murder that has passed. So uh, I'm gonna go back to doing. I'm going to go back to doing uh, standard wrestling moves back in the ring. Very bizarre moment there. I'm just like, what? What was the point of that? Muda was like, uh, headlocks, ice pick murder. Uh, he took it away though. Back to headlocks. I'm just like, what the hell? Very weird. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the ice pick? <laughs> it's 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 just like it's it's great Muda. Um, that's the best. Way. I just why I use any shenanigans of great Muda. It's like it's great Muda. Yeah. That doesn't always make sense, but it's always like okay, where's this going? Oh, it's going absolutely nowhere. Okay, I mean, um, this, this is the same guy who joined the NWO as the great Muda and continued yeah. wrestling. Continued wrestling in New Japan as KG Muda for like half a year. Yes. Always been a little weird. Always a little weird, but it's it's you know it's just one of those like okay is this the part where the match is going to pick up? No, we're going back to headlocks. Yeah. Nice little reprieve, nice little tease, but it's going nowhere. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, Muda eventually tosses Chono to the outside. Even that's kind of boring though. He does like this, uh, you know, light, really light whip in the railing spot, maybe the lightest one in New Japan history. Then immediately he throws him back in the ring and hits a flying chop. Okay. So it's very slow paced early on besides Muda, you know, the brief moment where Muda thought about committing a murder. Uh, just not much going on other than that. Not much crowd heat either, but it does pick up. So Muda tosses Chono right back out, but this time he tosses him to the famous Tokyo Dome elevated ramp. He hits a running bulldog from behind. 
uh, maybe the first actually impactful move of the match. Then he walks way up the ramp, gets this ridiculous, ridiculously long running start before he finally hits Chono with a lariat. Um, I'm not sure that needed that much buildup, honestly, but it looked kind of cool watching him run all the way down the ramp, I guess. For a second, Chono was like on his knees, and my brain went, oh boy, Shining Wizard. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> I was like, wait, that's like eight years away from being invented. So definitely not a Shining Wizard. But Chono was like in the position where you would hit a Shining Wizard. Like he was kind of kneeling like on one knee. And I was like, oh man, Muda could have done the Shining Wizard here eight years before he invented it. Just very, just very <laughs> weird. Uh, we get the 10 minute long call. Uh, not long after Muda's big lariat, Muda hits a German suplex hold uh, for a very close near fall. Then he comes up with like more than half his face paint missing, face paint missing, I should say. I mean, uh, just really peeled off there. I assume when he was running, basically, it's like because he go, he goes from like mostly on to you know mostly off like really quickly. It was very kind of bizarre. Um, but yeah, basically at that point he hits a handstand elbow in the corner. He goes for his moonsault, but Chono rolls out of the way and then immediately applies his signature SGF. That felt like his first offense in eons, but Muda makes the ropes fairly quickly, so not much of a sense of drama there. They fight out to the ramp again. Muda misses another handspring elbow. He just crashes in the ring apron. That landing looks so painful. I was just like, is this man okay? Like, he really just, just his momentum took him into that apron so fast. So, you know, that, that looked really painful. Chono then takes advantage of the backdrop suplex on the ramp. That looked great. And then he gets the STF on again. This time the drama in the building feels pretty high. And Muda, though, is able to make it to the ropes to break. And then Chono goes up top and tries a diving shoulder block. That had worked for him a little earlier. But this time Muda simply pushes him out of the way. He hits a backbreaker, heads up top, hits his moonsault. But Chono still kicks out too. Uh, but then Muda follows up immediately with a second moonsault. And that gets the pin, making him a double champion. Now, he would lose the NWA belt in his first defense. Uh, on February 21st, he went over the U.S. and dropped the belt to Barry Windham at Super Brawl. So that would be it for uh, the NWA world title in New Japan. And then, of course, lots of wackiness happens with the uh, NWA title in WCW to the point where we eventually get the WCW International World title. Aha. Uh-huh. Very different from the world title. Uh, <laughs> with the International Board of Governors. <laughs> uh, but yes, but his IWGP reign still had a way to go there. He would not drop the belt until September 20th uh, when he lost to Shinya Hashimoto to begin Hashimoto's famous first reign with the title. Uh, this match, though, very boring and nothing match for the first half. But then the second half was kind of great. So it really does pick up huge right around the 10-minute mark. So I guess you average that out, and I would say a good match, three and a half. Uh, just be ready to sit through some really boring stuff before it gets good. Three and a half. I would definitely say three and a half. Um, fun fact, it was the first Chono match I ever watched. Really? Wow. Yeah, 2005. Um, Limewire roulette, as I like to call it. <laughs> um, this is what I landed. I landed. Okay, this match, I landed with two Muda matches. This match and Muda Hirihashi, the one where Muda gets really ripped open. Oh, yeah, yeah. The famous, uh, the one that invented the Muda scale where people yeah. can, like the, uh, the Muda scale for blade jobs. So yeah. I went from the Muda scale match to this match. Yeah. So, like you said, the very first half of the match, very like this is a good example though of a cold match successfully getting heated up. Yeah. Because the first eight or nine minutes are just nothing. 
like we joke well, about the ice. We, yeah, yeah. We, I was gonna say nothing except for an attempted murder. Except for attempted murder, <laughs> which really was a very lighthearted attempt at best. Because once it was taken away, he didn't have a second plan B for murder. He's like, "Damn, no murder today. <laughs> no murder today. <laughs> no murder today. I'll just go back to headlock. I'll kill him with boredom. Yeah. Um. But no. But like you said, the second half really picks up. The stakes start feeling higher. You start feeling more drama, and has a good ending. I just like the ending that. It takes Muda two moonsaults to put him out. It shows that Chono still has some fight in him, but Muda is Muda, and it has no desire to lose the championship yet. Um, this is, like you said, three and a half. These two have had very good matches with each other. This just fell short of what they were able to do with each other. And um, it was better than Chono's other NWA defense against Rick Rude at Halloween Havoc, though. So at least you got that going for you. Um <laughs> Which was the first Chono match I ever watched. Actually was Chono versus Rick Rude Halloween Havoc. I take that back. Oh, oh God. Go. I'm traumatized. <laughs> I, I, I blocked that out. <laughs> I blocked that out. And like the memory came back. Well, remember that boring ass match you watched when you were nine years, ten years old? Shit, you're right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, three and a half. Not bad, but you got to sit through a lot of, you got to sit through half the match in boredom before you get to the good stuff. But if you get to the good stuff, it's good. Exactly. So yeah, definitely like not a match I regret watching at all, but nothing that I'd be like, oh, you have to see it, man. I'm like, no. I mean, you can't you can't tell anybody, you know, come on, you gotta watch this one. But go yeah. seek out that double title match. Yeah. The 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 second straight year, like like people joke about the uh, the or you know people like really hated the double gold dash, but it's like there's been so many double gold dashes apparently. Yep. I mean, like, well, we're, we're, just pay, we're just paying homage, apparently. That's the greatest, what we're doing. Eight, greatest 18 club double gold dash, NWA one title double gold dash. Yeah, there's been so many of them. Uh, I'm trying to think there's many other, any other ones because every other title, the other title match I can think, yeah, there was the well, wasn't the Tokyo Dome, but there was IWGP and Triple Crown when uh, when Kojima and Tenzon wrestled. Oh, was that one that was that was that the match that was supposed to go 60 minutes and Tenzon dropped out? Pretty much, the Tenzon got knocked out. Yeah, that's always been the rule. Yeah, that was that was that was actually the. I think that was actually the first Tenzon and Kojima match I ever watched. Oh, there you go. Uh, but yeah, so here we started out there very much in like the the original New Japan boom, right? The '90s boom, and you know they, they're doing really well. The Tokyo Dome that's opened, and we have the uh, the Three Musketeers really coming on here, as you saw with uh, Muto and Chono in this match. And we move forward only two years to uh, the next show, which was New Japan. Battle 7, January 4th, 1995. Again, a claimed crowd of 62,500, so you can probably guess somewhere around 40,000. Um, in this show, again, this is still New Japan, you know, with a very hot very hot uh, promotion. You have Hashimoto and Sasaki made a venting for the IWGP title, uh, so you have that newer generation. You have Inoki, you know, in competing in this weird martial arts tournament, uh, which we'll get into, but, uh, you know, towards the end of his career here. But yeah, this card, another big card for New Japan and definitely still in the uh, the 90s peak of the company here. Uh, the show opened up with the UWA World Junior Light Heavyweight title. Shinjiro Otani defeating El Samurai in 15-17. Then we get the IWGP Junior title. Uh, and this is around, I believe they're around the time the J-Crown was going to come into, uh, when the hell, I think the J-Crown was, maybe it was 96. Let's see. Because well, I'm wondering why we have random other titles. Yeah, still about a year away. So a year and a half away. So August 96. 
but yeah, so the junior division is still kind of a big deal at this point. But yeah, Norio Honaga defeats the great Sasuke to retain the junior title, the IWGP junior title in 1439. Uh, then we have the start of three Heisei Ishingun matches, and we'll definitely talk about them in a second because uh, they are in, we, spoiler alert, I guess we got one of their matches, but not this one. Uh, this is Akatoshi Saito, Kunaki, uh, Kuneaki Kobashi, and the great Kabuki defeating Akira Nogami, Takayuki Izuka, and Os- uh, Osomu Kido. In 1312, I, I totally butchered that. Uh, in 1312. I commend and, you for trying. Os- Osamu Kido is what I should have said in 1312. Then Koji Kanimoto defeating Yuji Nagata in 1443. Very early in Nagata's career, obviously, you know, before he even went on his little WCW excursion. And then we have uh, another guy early in his career here, Hiroyoshi Tenzan. Or two more earlier in the career, I should say. So these are third generation guys. Hiroyoshi Tenzan defeating Manabu Nakanishi in 740. Huh. Uh, then, then we have Tiger Jeet Singh and Tiger Jeet Singh Jr., uh, who you'll probably know better as a WWF fan as Tiger Ali Singh. Uh, they defeated another Heisei Ishingun team of Michiyoshi Ohara and Shiro Koshinaga in 1123. This show had a lot of matches, folks. Uh, then we get the, the BVT Martial Arts Tournament Semifinal. Sting defeats Tony Palmore in 429. Yeah, Sting was in the Martial Arts Tournament, everybody. Uh, then we had Antonio Inoki defeating Gerard Gordeaux in 637, uh, the other semifinal, the BVD Cup. Then we had the match we got here, uh, which was Ricky Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu defeating Hei Saint Ishingun. Uh, Kengo Kimura and Tatsutoshi Goto in 1232. Then Masahiro Chono and Sabu. Yes, he brought Sabu in to be his partner. This is like, I believe this is when like ECW really freaked out of him for like no showing to go to these New Japan dates. But yeah, he had like a pretty, he had a pretty decent run in, in uh, New Japan this year. I believe he even won the junior title. Let me just confirm that actually. But yeah, Chono and Sabu beat Junji Hirata and Tatsumi Fujinami. Almost positive he did, but I'm just double-checking. Uh, oh, maybe I was wrong. Oh, there it is. Never mind. May, see, I should never doubt myself. He won the IWGP Junior title May 3rd, 95. He beat Koji Kanemoto for it. Uh, made one successful defense, and then lost it back to Kanemoto uh, in June 14th, 95. So there you go. Uh, and then Hawk Warrior beat Scott Norton in 741. Then we had the BVD Cup Martial Arts Tournament Final. Antonio Inoki defeats Sting in 10-26. The semi-main event, the IWGP Tag Titles, Hiroshi Hase and Keiji Budo defeat the Steiner Brothers in 25-12. And the main event, as mentioned, Shinya Hashimoto defeats Kensuke Sasaki to retain the IWGP Heavyweight title in 1936. Uh, as far as what I would have liked to have gotten... Pretty much anything, but what we got, I mean, <laughs> the match we got was not very good. I mean, anything, anything else in this card would have been better. I mean, geez, look at you heard that card I just ran down, right? I mean, there was so much like awesome stuff and fun sounding stuff, and we could have seen Chono team with Sabu, and instead we got fucking this shit. <laughs> So, I, we, I mean, we we didn't get a single match from the, the prestigious martial arts tournament. I mean, Antonio Noki and Sting. I would have loved to see the Otani match, honestly. Yeah. I'd love Otani stuff, so. Uh, but yeah. I mean, what, what, get what, what we get. 
And we get what we get. So let's get into this matchup. We got Chochu and Yasu defeating Kimura and Goto in twelve thirty-two. So this was, I guess, you would still say the peak of the Heisei Ishingun stable. They were like a major '90s heel group in both New Japan and War. For people who don't know, the uh, Genichiro Tenryu's promotion War after uh, the Super World of Sport went down. But uh, you know, I, I would say maybe towards the end of the peak of that unit. I don't know. Like by the time, for sure, by the time the head of War, uh, Genichiro Tenryu himself, joined up with Ishingun in '98. That felt stupid. I remember reading things, people be like, you know, this guy basically bowed them for years and was then he was like, well, now I'm joining. Uh, I imagine it must have felt like the way Sting joined the NW Wolfpack felt to people, where it's like, he he hates these guys. Like, why is, why is he joining them? But yeah, uh, it's probably not a coincidence they were done, like, that Ishingun was done a year later, you know? Like, that was pretty much it. Like, they Tenru joins in 98 and the group disbands in 99. They just you know, just kind of was like the end of the unit. But at this point, Heisei Ishingun is still all over the cards. You heard in three separate matches. So Choshu's partner here, on the other hand, uh, Yoshiaki Yatsu, he had a very strange career already at this point. So he starts out as a New Japan Dojo guy. He's Choshu's tag partner. He jumps with Choshu, along with the entire uh, Ishingundan stable, to All Japan in 84. Then... You know, they formed that that weird other promotion, Japan Pro Wrestling, that, like, was not a real promotion, but they did run some shows. It was just kind of them, I don't know, fucking around and saying they were invading all Japan. Uh, but then when Shoshu and most of those guys jumped back to New Japan in 87, uh, Yoshiaki Yatsu stays behind in all Japan. But then he jumps from all Japan to the Super World of Sport promotion uh, with Genichiro Tenru and the others who left all Japan in 1990. But by the time the SWS ended, Tenru and Yatsu had a ton of heat. So he wasn't one of the guys who followed Tenru to the new war promotion. Instead, uh, Yatsu formed his own promotion, which was called the uh, Social Pro Wrestling Federation. And then he finally completed this very strange circle by starting to appear in New Japan again in 94, over a decade after he left. So, uh, you know, very, very strange. And once again, he was Ricky Cherish's occasional tag team partner. So, a strange long journey, I guess. Uh, nowadays, he's best known for competing in DDT, even after having his right leg amputated, which is pretty amazing. So, that's Yoshiaki Yatsu. Uh, the Ishingun t- team, you know, they've both been around forever at this part, especially Kengo Kimura. I think he's only a handful of years away from retiring, uh, which is one of those things I should have looked up again, but didn't look up. I believe he retired... Oh, God. Never mind. He lasted much longer than I thought. He didn't retire until 2003. I would have guessed like in, like 98 or something. Anyway. Um, but yeah, the, the match here, the heels end up beating on Choshu in the corner for a while with some uh, pretty uninteresting offense. Lots of kicking and headbutting and such. Uh, I, I never liked Heisei Ishingun. I don't know. So some people seem to like them. I, I mean, they are they are like the masters of, of like the boring brawl. Like, there's just never been that into them. They, they have, they're better, I guess, in war than in New Japan. Like, I've seen them in some matches in war where, like, you know, they're, they're fighting against Tenru and some other random, uh, you know, war guys. And, you know, it gets bloody and they're brawling all over Cork. And, like, those, like the, the, the stable was always much better in war to me than in New Japan. Like, New Japan, I, they just kind of were, like, very boring to me. But anyway, this is a great example of what they're like in New Japan, I think. Just very boring. Uh, Chosu finally comes back with a front suplex on Goto, 
And then he sort of like leisurely walks over and tags in Yatsu. Uh, that was funny because it was like ostensibly a heat period on him. But he's just like, yeah, ah, these guys are geeks. He just <laughs> walks right over, tags in Yatsu. And that just leads to more headbutting and a weak enzigiri from Yatsu. Uh, Choshu slowly tries to get the Scorpion Deathlock on Kimura, but for them, then for some reason, he just kind of flips him over again and gives up and tags in Yatsu, who then drops an elbow off him off the uh, elbow on him off the top, I should say. Strange little sequence there. Uh, Kimura tries to hold Yatsu for a charging lariat from Goto as Goto's like charging down the ramp, but Yatsu moves and Goto collides with Kimura. Just uh, you know, very stereotypical stuff here. Very. Uh, Maybe stereotypical is not the right word. Generic, maybe, is the word I'm looking for. Very generic stuff. Uh, Yatsu hits a weak lariat of his own. He tags in Choshu, hits a much better lariat, and then locks Kimura in the Scorpion, but Goto immediately gets in the ring to break it up. Uh, Choshu hits a backdrop suplex on Goto, and then he tags back in Yatsu, who hits a running power slam and a running bulldog on Kimura. And this match just feels like it has no flow no story at all. Just a bunch of stuff happening. Uh, Yatsu hits a second running bulldog. This one's pretty fucking sloppy. It almost looks like uh, Kengo Kimura slips out of his grasp before they're you know, supposed to hit the mat together. But Goto comes in to break up the pen. They double-team Yatsu. They try to set him up for what looks like a spike pile driver. But Choshu comes in, breaks it up, hits a superplex on Goto. Then Yatsu hits another running power slam on Kimura. He tags in Choshu. Choshu hits a weak-looking Larry on Kimura. Uh, almost like Kimura absorbs it, but then he goes down anyway, weirdly. Uh, Choshu then hits a second, much more normal lariat, and that gets the pin. This match, just a whole lot of nothing. Uh, like, you know, the the I should have mentioned this much earlier, actually, the uh, the Eggshells book by Chris Charlton, which I always use uh, as a great resource when I'm doing these Tokyo Dome shows. So definitely recommend that book. Uh, but, like, the, you know, the Eggshells chapter will sometimes talk about, like, a lot of different matches in the card, and sometimes just leave out matches completely. And the chapter on the, on this show doesn't mention this match at all. And I totally get why after watching it. Cause there's just absolutely nothing to it. Nothing to recommend here. I went two and a quarter. It's not like it's memorably bad or anything, but it's definitely below average and just fucking dull as hell. So I went two because a whole lot of nothing. And when it went slightly above nothing, it wasn't interesting. Um, like you said, there was no flow, no rhyme or reason. It was just a bunch of stuff. But it wasn't even like if you're going to do just a bunch of stuff in your match, at least make it stuff that makes me pop out of my seat. Right. You know, at least make it something. That, so when at the end of the match, I'm thinking that made no sense, but it was kind of cool. This was nothing. A complete dud. Like I was I almost fell asleep listening to you recap the match. And I'm not even <laughs> lying. I had my eyes. My eyes go. I'm like, oh my gosh! I cannot fall asleep during the middle of this podcast. I will never be invited back on. Jerry, but, Jerry, just Jerry, just saying, John, you're terrible. Your recap was awful. I was so bored. Two and a half stars. We're not listening to again. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Please retire from podcasting. No, I would. I would never say that vocally. <laughs> um, no. no, you just think that. <laughs> that came out so bad. I'm sorry. Uh, I just lost my status as magical podcast girl. Um, but no, this was just bad, bad. Like just, it started bad. The middle was bad and it, it never picked up. I think that's the worst thing. At least like with, um, Chono Muda, it picked up. You know, this didn't even pick up. It was just a slog throughout. And it wasn't even, real, and like, 
it felt longer than it was. And that's a crime because it wasn't that long. Yeah. So, you know, it was just bad. I'm just going two, and I might be very generous because I hated this match. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it, it just it wasn't very good. That is for sure. Okay. So, our next show we got, not moving that much further, was uh, New Japan Battle Formation in Tokyo Dome, which was April 29th, 96. So, not a January 4th show here. Uh, this show, again, very much still in the New Japan 90s boom. And, you know, this was the, this show they claimed 65,000. And I'm sure this show was very much sold out because this was the, the big Hashimoto Takata match. Uh, the opener here was Tokimitsu Ishizawa and Yuki Nagata beating Koji Kanemoto and Shinjiro Otani in 11-20. Then we had an eight-man tag match. Uh, Osamu Nishimura, Ruki Choshu, Shitoshi Kojima, and Takashi Izuka. They defeated Heisei Ishingun, Akira Nogami, Kuniaki Kobayashi, Shiro Koshinaka, and Tatsutoshi Goto in 11.04. We had the great Sasuke defeating Jushin Thunder Liger in 1927 to win the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title. This has one of the biggest uh, discrepancies between a Meltzer rating and a cage match rating I've ever seen. This is 4.5 from Meltzer, only a 7.09 from cage match, which implies like a 3.5. So, uh... Would have been interesting to see that one. But the match we got was Randy Savage defeating Hiroshi Tenzan in match number four in 949. Uh, match five, Masahiro Chono beating Lex Luger in 1437. Uh, then we had the Power Warrior and the Road Warriors, so uh, Animal Warrior and Hawk Warrior, defeating Scott Norton and the Steiner Brothers in 1517. Third from the top, a pretty famous match, Great Muda beating Jinsei Shinzaki in 1944. The semi-main event, Genichiro Tenru beating Tatsumi Fujinami in 916. And the main event, Shinya Hashimoto defeats Nobuhiko Takata. He wins back the IWGP title from the uh, UWFI Outsider in 1253. Um, you know, this is a this is a show. That, that's another actually pretty big discrepancy where Meltzer has it at four stars, but the inmates have it at 9.07, so implying a four and a half. I think I was closer to the inmates when I when I did this for the uh my Tokyo Dome series on the Patreon. I mean, I love that match. I love that match too. That's a great match. Um, so as far as anything I would have liked to have gotten, uh, I definitely would have liked to have gotten that Mudo, Mudo and Jinzei match because it's a pretty famous one. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not like the greatest match of all time or anything, it's just like, you know, these two like weird face paint of weirdos mm. facing off. Uh, and obviously I would have liked to have gotten Sasuke and Liger to see, you know, do I side with the inmates or do I sign with, side with uh, Dave Meltzer? Maybe that's six man too with uh, the Hawk Warrior and all that. But what are you going to do with the Power Warrior and the Rogue Warriors? I mean, against Norton and the the, uh, Steiners sounds interesting. But it's not what we got. We got Savage and Tenzon. Again, we get what we get. Yeah. Did you anything on this show you want? Oh, I definitely want that six man. Yeah. I definitely want the six man. Um, it is really funny though. We got Savage Tenzon. So if for those listening who maybe didn't hear the episode on our last Retro Roulette episode, which was the Star K Retro Roulette. We got Star K 95, and we got Savage vs. Tenzon. Oh, gosh. Now, now we, of all the fucking, with way more dome shows available to us, even counting the 12 <laughs> that we can't get, we somehow got the show with Savage Tenzon from a few months, from like five months later, and then got Savage Tenzon. I don't know what the odds of that are, but they have to be like, I don't know, like hitting a fucking lottery or something. So it is amazing how that, that we actually got this match. Um, 
so the, Savage at this point, he's still like in the middle of that, uh, you know, long-term feud with Ric Flair. Flair had taken the uh, WCW title and Miss Elizabeth from him back at Super Brawl in February. And they were just kind of like still, they basically feuded all the way until, you know, until like through, until like the summer. But everything in WCW was going to change forever at Bash of the Beach. And the NWO would, of course, have major ramifications for New Japan, too. So this match here is the battle of two future NWO members. Uh, although I get, do you know who joined first? I mean, I guess I kind of give it away by even asking. But uh, Tenzan joined first, which I, you know, I guess it makes sense when I think about it, but I would not have guessed. Uh, so Tenzan, you know, he had already joined up with Masahiro Chono and Hiro Saito to form the Team Wolf, uh, also known as Okani Gundan. That was in February 95. So they've already been together over a year here. So Chono joins the NWO at the end of 96, and then Tenzan and uh, Saito quickly become founding members of NWO Japan. Uh, Savage would not join the NWO until uh, Super Brawl 97, which would be February 97, so a couple months later. So that was like he got... they they He basically... If I remember correctly, he really did, like, his contract really was over with WCW, and he was, like, sort of looking into going back to WWF, and then it didn't happen for whatever reason, and obviously people have had a lot of uh, speculation over the years about why that may have been, but that may have been when Vince discovered uh, Savage did something bad when he was there, let's just say. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know why I'm being so coy. The, the Stephanie rumor, you know? Um but yeah, so Savage instead kind of had to go back to to Bischoff like hat in hand and take what he could get from Bischoff. And, you know, they kind of turned that into a storyline where like Savage starts showing up at, w- at hanging out with Sting. And it's like, well, you know, WCW fired him, him after, uh, you know, after he couldn't get the title from Hollywood Hogan. And then he turns on, uh, he, he basically turns on Piper and costs him the title against Hogan and then joins up with the NWO. So, uh Anyway, that's still a ways off, though. Also, the this trio, the NWO Japan trio, that would very quickly dr- quickly grow too. With uh, you know, Great Muda most notably joining in May of '97. So, you know, NWO Japan was a big deal. It was a big deal in America too, obviously. But uh, we had two future NWO members meeting here right on the uh, only a few months before the, the start of the group. Uh, this match here, this was on YouTube, not New Japan World. So we get to see some entrances here, and we get to see Savage. Just grabbing a mic and saying, oh, yeah, for no reason. <laughs> it was kind of great. Like, when he did that, I was like, what? He just Does he just do that all the time, I guess? He's just like, I got to give him a treat, bro- a treat brother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. He's his uh, own hype man. What'd you say? He's his own hype man. Yeah, there you go. Hmm. Uh, Tenzon, you know... Tenzon basically was like already had his like iconic theme music at this point, which I, I, you know, his theme music is so good. It's one of my all time favorite themes, but, uh, the YouTube clip has a weird jump cut. We cut from like the bell ringing to Savage choking Tenzon on the mat. I'm not sure how much we missed, but it's a very short match anyway. So it couldn't have been that much. Uh, the match is pretty boring for first, especially they don't, they don't do much of anything. Uh, Tenzon does finally hit this nice little stomp off the apron to the floor, but that's the kind of the highlight of the early part by a wide margin. They just beat each other up with punches and stomps back and forth. Uh, Savage finally hits a scoop slam, goes for his diving elbow, but Tenzon rolls out of the way just as we get the five minute call. Tenzon immediately applies a grounded headlock, 
not really his anaconda vice. I'm not really sure he'd invented that yet by this point, but it looks sort of like it. Uh, Savage, though, escapes and just, uh, just, just like sort of tosses Tenzon through the ropes to the floor. He then goes for his double sledgehammer off the top rope to the floor, but Tenzon counters the right hand of the gut as Savage comes down. That was kind of cool. And I was greatly amused by Tenzon doing this weird, almost Mongolian chop-esque dance with his hands before he had a leg drop off the second rope. I have no idea why he did that, but it was pretty funny. He then followed up with some headbutts and then a flying headbutt, but Savage kicked out at two. Uh, Tenzon hit a sloppy backbreaker. He went up top of the moonsault, but Savage was able to roll all the way. Savage then dropped his famous elbow on Tenzon, but much to my surprise, Tenzon kicked out of it. Uh, Savage went up and hit a second diving elbow. He doesn't cover him. He goes to hits a third diving elbow. Then he doesn't cover him again. Instead, he picks him up and small packages him, and that gets the pen. Uh, kind of an odd finish, but I, I thought they were trying to maybe protect Tenzon here since he was losing two straight matches to Savage. Uh, you notice Chono beat Luger, which was a reversal from their match at the World Cup of Wrestling at Star Arcade 95. So Chono got his win back over Luger, but uh, Tenzon at this point was still, you know, pretty young, and they, I guess they felt he could lose to Savage again. But, you know, they definitely kind of protected him there with the finish. Uh, you know, this was not like anything special, but, you know, it was like an under-10-minute match. Pretty dull for the first half of it, but I, I thought it was fine by the end. I really, like, did start to enjoy it in the last few minutes. So I went Gentleman's 3. Uh, I thought it was way better than their horrible Starcade match that we talked about on the last episode. I mean, you know, they, they Savage looked like he actually tried here. I mean, I don't know if it was because it was the Tokyo Dome or what, but, I mean, he, he, he did more just missing that elbow drop and, like, taking a bump for that than he did in that entire Starcade match. So Two and three-fourths it. It was nothing special, but I agree. It's definitely better than the Starcade match, which I, for some odd reason, have watched. Um, <laughs> that match sucks. It's yeah. There's 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 no gentle way of putting it. It stinks. And but this, 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 you know what? I can understand giving it a three because it just picks up in the final few minutes, and it's it's kind of cool seeing Savage, who at this point was a legend, go up against you know still finding himself Tenzin. That's kind of cool. Yeah. You no, know, it's just a nice little odd pairing. And you don't I don't think you got Savage in Japan a lot. Yeah. I can only think of one other match. I think I know I think he wrestled Tenru in Japan at one point. But I can't think of many more Savage in Japan matches that happened. I know probably a couple others did, but I can't think of them. So it's just just cool seeing Savage in a different element because he's mostly, you know, an American territory guy. So two and three fourths, you know. I will say this, I probably appreciated this match af- more after the last match we got. So, <laughs> you know, it's like it's like it's like oh Savage Tension Sore, I'll watch this. Yeah. Um especially since I did watch these matches in the order you sent them to me. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, you, I always watch them in the chronological order too cuz it's just yeah. fun to follow along the years, you know. Yeah, and I'm I'm a huge Savage fan, so even when the match is not good, I'll give it a chance cuz it's Savage. Yeah. So we fast forward all the way from there to our next show, which is the New Japan Tokan Memorial Day 30th anniversary, May 2nd, 2002. So another non-January 4th show. A claimed attendance of 57,500. Uh, so you can see their claimed attendances are getting lower because it's pro- it probably did not sell out. Probably did like somewhere between 30 and 35,000. Um, and this is definitely... I, I, it's a period of major turmoil for New Japan. Like this is starting to get to the bad part 
uh, of the Nokiaism. Not you're not. I don't think you're quite at like the. I mean, you're nowhere near the, the basement yet. But this is really where the political turmoil in the company is really, you know, hurting the company. Um, you know, so Hashimoto he left to form Zero One a year earlier. He does return on this show, but that that matches his final appearance in New Japan before his death. Uh, you know that that it's on this show. Um, Muto and Kojima, uh, they made their famous jump to All Japan right at the start of 2002. So the end of January 2002 after the January 4th show. So they lost, you know, two major, you know, major, major star in Keiji Muto and a big up and cover in, you know, third generation guy in Satoshi Kojima at the start of 2002. And the the final, I guess, of what you call the big blows right around this period, I uh, would be the longtime booker uh, and obviously top star Ricky Choshu would leave the company at the end of May in 2002. So this is his last dome show before he leaves. Um, so he held a, he held a very famous press conference, uh, on May 31st, 2002, where he just fucking trashed Antonio Inoki. Uh, you know, the, the eggshells book like really goes over this and the, gives one of the lines is like, quote, now I know why giant Baba never trusted him. <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, but yeah, so Shoshu leaves. That would also result in very quickly result in Kenji Suzaki falling him out the door, which that was another top star they lost. So they lost so many top guys around this period. Uh, but yeah, Choshu and, and uh, Sasaki formed the very ill-fated and short-lived World Japan promotion. But, you know, regardless of how badly World Japan did, that meant New Japan lost yet another top star. And Sasaki would come back, so would Choshu. Both is, uh, I believe, I don't know if they ever signed contracts. Choshu, I think, might have signed a contract. Sasaki definitely never did. Sasaki was a freelancer. And, you know, he had like one more IWGP title run or one or two more, but like he, after a certain point, he never wrestles in New Japan again. Like he, they, he shows up as a freelancer for a little while and, you know, he ends up becoming more of a uh, Noah and all Japan guy. I want to get it. What, what, what he never, I think it's like 2000. It's pretty early. It's like 2004, 2005, I think when he never appears in the company again. Let's just say, uh, yeah, 2005. So yeah, 2005, is, he makes five appearances in New Japan after March 2605, he never appears in the company again. So, because the there are, if you look on his thing, the only other New Japan appearances are uh, all together shows where he's representing all Japan. So, you know, there's New Japan, all Japan, Noah uh, charity shows. So, definitely uh, the end of an era here with as far as Sasaki leaving as a as a main eventer. Uh, so let's go through the card here. This, like I said, very much feels like a a big end of an era here. We have the opener, Kintaro Kanemura and defeating Daisuke Sekimoto in 8.03. So some big Japan representation there. Then we have Katsuyori Shibata, at this point very much a young boy, uh, beating Wataru Inoue in 6.26. Uh, Tiger Mask and Tiger Mask. I believe this would be uh, Tiger Mask 4 and Tiger Mask 1, I think. Oh, no, no. Sorry, Tiger Mask 4 and 3. So it's Koji Kanemoto under the other, other Tiger Mask. They defeat Black Tiger and El Samurai in twelve fifty four. I would have loved to get in that, gotten that one. The Black Tiger here, by the way, is Silver King, uh, the Luchador Silver King. Then we have a random Joshi tag back when New Japan was, uh, you know, promoting the God. What the hell was the name of that Joshi promotion they were promoting? Uh, I think it's, I want to say it's like M's Project or something. Someone can correct me if they remember. I think it's I think it was M's Project or something like that. But yeah, they had like a Joshi company. They had like part ownership of. And they were, you know, they had like random, uh, you know, guest matches on New Japan cards around this time. 
So it was Kaoru uh, Ito and Momori Nakanishi defeating Minami Toyota and Yumiko Hoda in 12-16. Would have loved to have gotten that match too. Then Jusen Thunder Liger and Minoru Tanaka beating Gato and Jado in 1744 to win the IWGP Junior Tag Titles. Uh, then, as mentioned, the final match for Hashimoto in New Japan and the second to final match uh, for Naoya Ogawa. And this was Hashimoto and Ogawa teaming up for the first time, I believe, uh, as they defeat Tenzan and Scott Norton. And, you know, obviously they started out as rivals in New Japan and they would go on to uh, be, you know, pr- teammates in Zero One over the next couple of years. Uh, yeah, so oh, what was Ogawa's last New Japan match? Let's see. It was 2004. Okay, so he he teamed with Toshiaki Kawada to beat Tanahashi and Tenzan at the Osaka Dome, November 13, 2004. There you go. I guess they're representing Hustle. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they were both Hustle at that point. So uh, Then we have Bas Rutin beating Manabu Nakanishi in six minutes. Don Fry beating Taro Yasuda in 151. Uh, the Steiner Brothers beating Tanahashi and Kensuke Sasaki with special referee uh, China. In 1438, that was before when China was briefly in New Japan. And, uh, you know, she ended up wrestling Masahiro Chono at one point. The semi-main event, the match we got here, Yuji Nagata defeating Yoshihiro Takayama to retain the IWGP title in 1536. And the main event, the, uh, you know, New Japan versus Noah match, Masahiro Chono versus Mitsuharu Misawa, which went to a time limit draw in 30 minutes. So anything stand out in that card like that you would have wanted, wanted to have gotten, Jerry? For therapeutic purposes, I would have loved to see Jado and Gato get beat. <laughs> there you go. It would just, it would, it would just be like, you know what you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dick Toto's not there, so I don't know. Uh, darn it, I can't get complete it then. Yeah, yeah Dick Toto's, yeah, I'll get Dick Toto, Tick, Dick Toto, Tick, Dick Togo abuse elsewhere. <laughs> uh, so this match here that we got was a semi-main event. Uh, Featured Yuji Nagata defending his title against Takayama. So this is right before Takayama's incredibly famous fight with Don Fry uh, at Pride 21, which was uh, June 23rd, so about a month and a half later. So Takayama, he's already very over at this point, uh, hence his title challenge here. But that match, that fight with Don Fry, the really famous like standard trade fight, would take him to a whole different level. So... After that fight, he gets his very brief GHC heavyweight title reign in Noah. He beats uh, Yoshinari Ogawa, different Ogawa, the rat boy that's still around today. He beats him on September 7th. He loses to Misawa on September 23rd. Uh, so that's his brief GHC title reign. And then he goes on to even more success in New Japan. He wins a tournament for the reactivated uh, NWF heavyweight title, which was once held by Inoki uh, on January 4th, 2003. And they defeats Nagata for the IWGP title in a double title match on May 2nd. Uh, both those matches were held at the Tokyo Dome. So he beats Nagata a year after this, exactly a year later, May 2nd, 2003. Uh, but yeah, year to the day before that, we have this match where he comes up short against Nagata for the IWGP. And this is Nagata's first defense of his first reign. He beat Taro Yasuda on April 5th at the Budokan. So there's your little history. The match here, Nagata and Takayama, they do some fun mat wrestling to start. Uh, they end up back on their feet, and then Takayama backs Nagata in the corner with a clinch, and the referee kind of forces the break. They end up back on their feet in the middle of the ring, and Nagata ducks a high kick, suddenly hits a backdrop suplex hold out of nowhere, the bridging backdrop. It's a great one. It, like, fucking folds Takayama in half, but he no-sells it. He kicks out at one, 
and grabs Nagata in a side headlock out of nowhere. That was awesome. Uh, Nagata makes it the ropes to break, though. Just a great little sequence there. Uh, Nagata starts kicking the absolute shit out of Takayama's chest with these middle kicks. He goes for the backdrop suplex again, but this time Takayama just lowers his base to block it. He gets his German suplex hold out of nowhere. Uh, I don't think the fir- the full ever is German. I mean, like, have the whole windup. But Nagata kicks out at one. So, you know, I guess pay him back for kicking out at one out of the backdrop. Uh, we get a knockout tease in Nagata. That goes on a while. After that, Nagata gets an ankle lock on Takayama. Takayama, always a very underrated seller. He does a great job here, just like convulsing in pain before he makes the ropes. Uh, and then Takayama comes back with this awesome dropkick on Nagata right after another knockdown tease. And you're just like, how does a man that big do that dropkick? He then hits a jumping knee in the corner. He hits a great double arm suplex. He just tosses Nagata, and that gets a two count just as we get the 10 minute call. And then Takayama does a penalty kick, and then he drops the leg, Hogan style, uh, for a two count. I guess they both have blonde hair. Uh, Nagata hits a sweep kick that counters Takayama's kicks, basically just takes the base, the base leg out from under him. That was pretty awesome. Then he immediately follows up with this crazy head kick to a kneeling Takayama, followed by the figure four, a.k.a. the Nagata Lock 2, uh, complete with the full salute as he falls to the mat in the hold. Uh, that's what that's the moment where I just wrote like God using Nagata rules so hard because when watching him do that salute as he go falls onto his back for the figure four he's so awesome. Uh, Takayama makes the ropes to break. Nagata hits a couple more head kicks, gets another backdrop suplex hold, but Takayama just barely kicks out at two. Uh, he blocks another enzigiri from Nagata, hits him with this enormous standing knee right to the face. He then picks Nagata up and gives him the full Everest German. But Nagata just barely kicks out. Uh, then they just start trading punches. That's why it's kind of cool. But at the same time, you can kind of see these punches aren't really landing. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it was fine, but I didn't love that, I guess. They both pull each other's hair as we get the 15-minute call. They start just trading blows again. Takayama hits a big knee. But Nagata ducks his high kick, hits two high kicks of his own, and that's the pin. I, I didn't love the finish. I thought both those high kicks really felt like they landed with... Uh, I don't know. They didn't really feel like they landed with match-ending match ending potential, I guess. They were much better kicks earlier in the match. But uh, maybe that's a nitpick. I don't know. It's still an awesome match. Easy four stars here. Four stars flat. Uh, uh, blew away everything else we watched on the, on this epi- for this episode so far. That's for sure. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like You know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever, but if you're really in this game to, to find value and find particular cards... It sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing, you know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. 
you get a display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. And you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying... Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off again that's arena club.com slash vow net arena club.com slash vow net for 10 percent off your first purchase on arena club and we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network solid four stars i you know we we're talking about how the um tag match earlier was just boring brawling with nothing this was fun brawling with everything just just they just went at each other. That's the best way to put it. And both of these guys are just great. Let's let's get that out of the obvious way. They're both great. And this was Nagata's first. This was Nagata's first title defense. And they just go to town on each other. The um suplex that he, that Nagata hits that Takiyama kicks out at one and keeps the you know gets him in a headlock. That's just ruled. The kicks and the knockout teases ruled because I could even though I knew the knockout wasn't going to happen just because of the way the match was going, I would have bought it. I admit the punches near the end weren't that great. You could tell some of them weren't landing, like you said. But at that point, I was into the match, and it didn't bug me. It's like, okay, whatever. I'm not going to get too bothered by this. If the match was bad and that happened, then I would be shitting all over it immediately. So, hypocrite alert, but I don't care. Um, And the kicks at the end, I like the knockout ending, but I agree it needed more force or i mean it needed to look like it had more force for it to fully work but i like what they were going for i just wish it had more impact when they did it yeah that's fair yeah, yeah. i mean i definitely like the concept of the ending too it just didn't yeah. feel like the kicks landed hard enough yeah but four stars easy this is the best thing we watched up to this point yeah there's one other match we're gonna get to that rivals it i think but we'll get to that obviously obviously uh the next match was from January 4th, 2005, the New Japan Tokan Festival Wrestling World 2005. A claimed attendance of 46,000, so you know this thing did like twenty to 25,000, maybe. Uh, you know, like the claimed attendance is getting smaller and smaller. And this is, a, we're well into the rough period now for New Japan. Uh, you know, this this show, you know, at this point, Tatsumi Fujinami uh, just stepped down as president a few months earlier, May 2004. I guess more than a few months, but... You know, the pre- within a year, less than a year. So Fujinami stepped down as president uh, May, May 2004. A ton of outside executives are brought in to try to help the company. Uh, they all found it very hard to really get anything turned around, though. And, you know, they got eggshells goes into a lot, of, a lot of good stuff on this where basically, you know, not even just eggshells either. Uh, Shartan has another book that goes into New Japan history 
I think it's called Lion's Pride, which I've read that one too. And he goes into a lot of a lot of the uh, you know the political intrigue in this period. But the the short the short story is at this point, you know, Inoki Antonio Inoki still has ownership and control of the company, uh, but the company is going down the tubes. So there's lots of uh, you know there there are a lot there's lots of rumblings that like people are going to attempt a hostile takeover and try to buy him out. And you know, the, the, obviously they were very distracted at this point. And by the end of 05, Inoki would sell his controlling shares to Ukes. Uh, that happened November 30th, 05. So we're, you know, less than a year away from the Ukes buyout. Now, not much changes at first when Ukes buys it. Like the original idea was, you know, uh, Inoki and especially his son-in-law, Simon, were still going to be in control. But I guess Ukes very quickly realized that was not going to work because Simon Inoki, he only makes it uh, to March of 2007. Uh, you know, as president before he steps down. Uh, at that point, Simon is replaced by uh, Naoki Sugabayashi. That's a name many of you probably know because he's still with the company this day, you know, to uh, now nowadays he's the chairman. But yeah, he was the replacement president in March of 2007 uh, for Simon Inoki. He would oversee their eventual turnaround. Uh, but at this point, early 2005, we're still in the final and rather dire days of Inokiism. And you can probably, there's one match in particular that's really infamously awful. So we'll get to that in a second. Not the match we got, thankfully. Uh, the opener, Gato and Jado versus Katsushi Takimura and Watawa Inoue. That went to a 15-minute time limit draw. Uh, match two, Jushin Thunder Liger defeating Koji Kanemoto in 10-30 in IWGP Junior Title number one contendership match. Match three, for the IWGP Junior Title, Tiger Mask beats Heat, a.k.a. Minoru Tanaka, in 1417, and that's the match we got. Uh, match four, an amateur wrestling exhibition. Uh, Yuji Nagata beats his brother, Katsuhiko Nagata, in five minutes. Then we have Minoru Suzuki beating Takashi Izuka in 945. Then Satoshi Kojima defeats Osamu Nishimura in 1926. Then we get the very infamous, very horrible eight-man Ultimate Royale match. Now, Jerry, do you know the Ultimate Royale I do not. So this match, don't ask me how it was supposed to work. The answer was it didn't. There's eight <laughs> There's eight wrestlers, okay? Okay. Uh, Ron Waterman, Blue Wolf. Uh, oh, God. I, I, this name, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's very – it's a, not Japanese for name. Dolgursun Sumia Bazaar. I did my best, everybody. Uh, Manabu Nakanichi, Masayuki Narusei. Mitsuya Nagai, Toriyano, and Yuji Nagata. Yes, they put fucking Yuji Nagata in this match. <laughs> but the eight, these eight wrestlers somehow had four shoot fights in the same ring at the same time. Now, you may be saying <laughs> that sounds horrible, and that sounds like a mess, and that sounds like something that was not going to work. It was all of those things. It was all, this is like this like if I had to pick one thing that's like the absolute nadir, right? The the fucking rock bottom of Enochiism, this is it. And everybody listening knows I defend Enochiism sometimes. There's some great stuff in the Enochi years. This is the fucking rock bottom oh of the Enochiism. This is fucking horrible. So you have four fights going on at once. Uh Waterman beats Naruse. In 235 by TKO. Nakanushi beats Yano in 309. The guy with the name I'm not going to say again beats Nagai in 546. And Yuji Nagata 
beats Blue Wolf in 549. Then we get two semifinals in the same ring. <laughs> Ron Waterman beats Nakanishi in 102, and Nagata beats Dogo, whatever, and by TKO in 153. And then for the final, yes, Ron Waterman, ex-WWE, uh, you know, fucking developmental guy, best known for looking kind of like Scott Steiner. He beats Yuji Nagata to win this fucking thing in 141. Uh, so there you go. He, meanwhile, he would be gone from the company only a few months later. He wrestled eight matches total for them. Uh, but he did lose to Keiji Moto at the Tokyo Dome in May 2005. So there you go. This, I guess they were building him up to lose to a guy who wasn't even with the company. I don't know. Because <laughs> oh, was all at that point. Speaking of really confused. So anyway, that, that match, I should say. Oh, God. Not just one of the most worst matches in New Japan history. I mean, like, if you ask any New Japan fan, I feel like in Japan, you know, like to name the worst match in New Japan history, if they've been around long enough, there's a great chance they're going to name this match. It's like, I, it's very infamous among the Japanese fan base. Oh, God. I need you to understand. I, I ugly laughed so bad my cat went into hiding. <laughs> <laughs> it's really horrible. And it's on New Japan World for some reason. I don't. I don't know why. There's tons of awesome classic matches not available on New Japan World. And they're like, you know, we got to make sure we have the Ultimate Royal. I was like, okay. This is this match is feels. This just from this, you explaining to me. It sounds like something you would do to punish someone. It's like you've been bad today. You're gonna sit down and watch this match and think about what you did. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's just awful. Yeah, very fair. Oh my god. I can't stop laughing. <laughs> uh, the semifinal, the very... Speaking of confusing and horrible booking. So Masahiro Chono, he has a feud with Ricky Choshu. And the feud in particular is about Choshu uh, saying that Chono wouldn't last his booker when he left the company back in 2002, as we said. So Chono, uh, with Choshu coming back, World Japan was a total failure. So Choshu comes back to the company. And Chono and Choshu are having a feud at this point. And Chono's like, well, we're going to have a match, I guess. But then... At the last second, Chono adds Hiroyoshi Tenzan, at this point, the current IWGP Heavyweight Champion, to the match to make it a, quote, three-way dogfight. And Chono beats Choshu in 654 as elimination, and then he beats Tenzan in 1133. And again, Tenzan at this point is IWGP Champion. Furthermore, he's a month away from a double title match with the Triple Crown Champion. So why did Chono book himself to beat the current IWGP champion a month before his big interpromotional showdown with Kojima? I don't know, folks. You'd have to you'd have to ask Masahiro Chono in 2005, I guess, because I'm sure he doesn't remember now. But uh, pretty pretty horrible, <laughs> pretty horrible decision. Uh, the main event, the IWGP under 30 openweight title, Shinsuke Nakamura beats Hiroshi Tanahashi to win the title in 24:45. So yes, folks. This is the first ever Nakamura versus Tanahashi Tokyo Dome main event, the first of many to come. Uh, and it's for the IWGP U30 title, the under 30 title, which uh, I don't think would last long after this. I think it's, yeah. So the belt started with Tanahashi uh, April, 2003. He held it for 622 days. So he had this fucking thing for a long time until he loses it here. Nakamura holds it for 117 days. He vacates it. Tanahashi gets it back. And then he vacates it again, I think, when he wins the IWGP heavyweight title. And that's the end of the belt. So <laughs> it's a belt that's, like, I feel really well-remembered, given how short it was around, you know? But anyway. Uh, I mean, DDT just had a, had a parody of it, like, last year. Remember the over 40 title? It even looks exactly <laughs> like it. 
So, you know, I feel like this belt that only was around two, three years, not even, had three total champions, two of which were the same guy. Uh, you know, three, I should say three reigns, two champions. But, you know, I guess it helps that it's Tanahashi and Nakamura. That probably makes a big difference. Oh, but, my uh, gosh, this card. Yeah, not not New Japan's finest hour, let's just say. The main event, I mean, Meltzer gave it three and three quarters. I remember not even liking it that much. So, you know, Tanahashi and Nakamura were a weird pairing where they, they had some really great matches, especially towards the end of Nakamura's New Japan run. But they had a lot of matches I was not that into. So this was definitely one. Given the choices, though, if I could have picked anything else, I would have picked that, though. Yeah, but main events weren't eligible. Yeah, that's right. Darn yeah. it. Just, we, we probably got the best match on the show. <laughs> and that's saying something because I didn't love this match. But. I forgot the main event were eligible. I hate this card even more now. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so this match here, we're talking about, obviously, the junior heavyweight title. So Heat, for people who don't know Heat, that was the masked gimmick of Minoru Tanaka. So he took on that gimmick to promote a video game for the Game Boy Advance called Tokan Heat. Now, I believe the deal here is you know, there's a New Japan video game, obviously. I believe the Heat gimmick was like the player character in the story mode of the video game. Don't quote me on that, but I'm almost positive that's the case. Uh, and it was sort of, didn't it? Didn't TNA do the same thing with Suicide, right? Where yes. He, that was like the default character in the story mode, and then they turned that into a into an actual wrestler in the company. So Heat lasted nowhere near as long as Suicide, I will say. So Heat started with the gimmick in late 2002. At this point, he has been IWGP Junior Champion for over a year. He won the title from Jado December twenty fourth, two thousand or December fourteenth, I should say, two thousand three, which was his third title reign. Obviously, for the first two, he was Minoru Tanaka, not Heat, and he was trying to make his twelfth defense here. So he had the belt for it made a lot of defenses too, not just you know, not one of these reigns where he had it for a long time wasn't defending it. Now he also had just turned heel a few months earlier, uh, September of uh, September of oh uh, four when he joined the CTU unit, the Control Terrorism Unit. I just realized I said CTU unit, the uh, the ATM machine thing, where, you know. <laughs> but yes. Uh, but yeah, you can see Gato and Jado in his corner, both wearing that fucking awesome rad CTU shirt. I once owned it a very long time ago, and I wish I still had it today. The shirt is so awesome. But yeah, so he's in CTU, and the heat gimmick is not long for this world. Evil heat. Did not last that long. He would go back. <laughs> he would go back to his uh, original name, and then eventually he dropped his last name, very WWE esque of him, and just went by Minoru for the rest of his uh, New Japan career. Tiger Mask, though, meanwhile, was the same Tiger Mask for we all know and love today. He jumped from Michinoku Pro to New Japan full time in December '02. He already held the IWGP, IWGP Junior Title once before. Uh, he won in April '03, and then he. Uh, had to vacate it in September due to an injury. So he's trying to become a two-time champion here. Uh, Heat's shoulder, by the way, is all taped up here. I'm, I'm not sure if that was a legit injury or if it was an excuse for him to lose his title match. Uh, but either way. So Tiger starts things off very fast here. It's a pair of drop kicks to Heat. Those send him to the floor. Then he hits a big dive. He fakes out another dive, just sort of like springboards down to the floor where they brawl around ringside. And he ends up taking advantage by tossing him into the ring post a couple times. Then he drags him up the Tokyo Dome ramp. Uh, he goes for a fisherman suplex. Now, Tiger Mask blocks that. He lands behind him on the ramp, but then he slips and falls to the floor below. Now, I wanted to ask your opinion on this, Jerry. 
I'm almost positive it was an accident and not planned just by both the reactions, but they do go with it really well. So what do you think? Do you think they really meant to do this or do you think he just slipped and fell off the ramp? I think he slipped and fell personally. It, and I'm going to tell you right now, not having ever seen this match before, I cringed when I saw it. I was like, oh God. <laughs> I mean, that could have gone much worse for him, right? Really that could have gone much worse. That's the only reason I think it wasn't planned because it just looked like it could have been bad. Yeah. And they do, like, but, said, oh, but, they, but they recover well. Yeah, they go with it. Like he quickly goes down there and beats on him. He even hits a nice high kick out there. Uh, they go back in the ring. We end up on the mat for a while where he uh, eventually gets a sort of sort of uh, front guillotine. Tiger was able to make up the ropes to break. He gets the front guillotine back on through the five minute mark and then won't let go of it uh, after Tiger makes the ropes again. Um, then, you know, Definitely not the most thrilling action. It doesn't help that the uh, crowd is completely dead by this point. So a little later, Tiger comes back with a kind of light running kick in the corner, followed by a uh, Tiger driver for two count. He quickly pulls him right back down again. Then he hits uh, two of these big backdrop suplexes that he really just sends him flying on. Uh, Tiger sells that he's knocked out, and then he he hits a third one of those. Uh a little bit later after that, they fight the top rope. Unfortunately, they kind of blow the spot. So supposed to be Tiger Mask knocking Heat off and then Heat hitting a midair drop kick on Tiger Mask as he comes off the top rope. But they mistime it and they miss the drop kick by a mile. So it does not look good at all. Uh, Tiger Mask puts him in a sort of a chicken face cross wing or <laughs> cross face chicken wing. I don't know what the fuck I just said. Did I say chicken face cross? <laughs> I really reversed that. It's sort of cross face chicken wing. Uh, then he turns it into his, uh, I really can't get over that, chicken face cross wing. Uh, he turns it into a suplex uh, where he goes back up to his feet and then he delivers a tiger suplex hold for the win and the title. So Tiger Mask is new champion. He would go on to hold it the next 277 days. He would not lose it until October 2005. Uh, the next champion would be Black Tiger. Uh, happens to be Rocky Romero uh, under that gimmick at this point. So, all right, folks, we got cut off. Have to happen at least once per episode, I feel like, but uh, I do know where I got cut off. So I'll get jump right back into what I was saying. So uh, Tiger Mask wins the belt here. He would go on to hold the belt six times in total. Uh, his last reign actually ended uh, January 4th, 2010, which happens to be our next and final show that we got. So another weird coincidence there. Uh, Minoru Tanaka, meanwhile, he wouldn't win the belt again until December 2006, uh, and that would be his final title reign, losing it in July 2007 to Ryusuke Taguchi. But as far as this match goes, I thought it was a perfectly fine match, uh, botches aside, but not much more than that. I would go three stars here again. The crowd really did not do this match any favors, I will say. Perfectly acceptable three-star wrestling. Um it doesn't speak well for a match where the part that made me get out of my seat the most was probably a mistake. <laughs> and that was just falling off the ramp because I, I thought for a moment I had just gotten the match that someone got hurt. It was like, Oh shit. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, good, good, good. The match is continuing. And then it's like, wow, this crowd does not care about this match. And when a crowd doesn't care about the match, it really affects you caring about the match. They always used to be the case for junior title matches the Tokyo Dome. They never used to get any kind of reaction. So. Yeah, which is disappointing because sometimes there were good matches. This was an okay match. An okay three-star match that I don't want to say either one of them did anything wrong. It's just they didn't do enough miraculously right to make things go to another level. Yeah. 
it's one of those matches where I can't really talk much about because there's really not much to pinpoint other than the unfortunate slip off the ramp. So yeah. that's what we have. Yeah. Uh, so that's that one. So now we get to our final show here that we got, which was uh, Wrestle Kingdom 4 in Tokyo Dome. So the only uh, Wrestle Kingdom that we got here for this episode. Uh, it was January 4th, 2010. From the Tokyo Dome, a claimed attendance of 41,500, which uh, I'm sure the actual attendance was much smaller than that, given the, the crowds they were drawing during this period. Uh, so we're this is like 2010, January 4th, 2010. Interesting, interesting date, right? Like New Japan's not out of their bad period, to be sure. You can see like the beginning of a turnaround, I guess. You know, 2009 had been a big year. You know, chaos had formed. Shinsuke Nakamura took most of the GBH unit from Togi Makabe uh, and formed chaos with that group. And the Nakamura Makabe feud that took up most of 2009 was at least like hotter than anything else. New Japan had done in, you know, quite a few m- number of years, but business was obviously still not great at this point. Still very sparse crowds. Um, and we're still a couple years away from the start of Okada Tanahashi and what you would call like the real turnaround. Like I would say, I always say like 2010, and like 2009, 2010, 2011, like there's some really good stuff in there. I would even include 2008, actually. Like there's some really good stuff. You can see the beginning signs of the turnaround. Uh, maybe maybe it's actually separate out 2011, like 08, 09, 010. It's like, you know, there's some really good stuff with like Nakamura and Goto and Tanahashi um, and Makabe too, actually. And, but the company is still obviously struggling to get any traction you know, after the Inoki year, the last year Inoki years really put them in the toilet. Uh, but you can see the signs of a turnaround. 2011 almost feels like the the first Bushiroad year, even though it's not actually a Bushiroad year. Bushiroad buys them at the beginning of 2012. Um, but like 2011, like you, there's a big difference. Like Tanahashi's champion the whole year. Like you really feel like, okay, this is part of the same era of what's going to happen come, you know, uh, going forward. There's a lot of really great matches in 2011. And then obviously 2012, uh, you know, Bushiro buys the company. Okada Tanahashi kicks off. Uh, you know, we get the first big Naito push and the start of the Naito Okada feud. And, you know, just really feel Nakamura obviously becomes an even bigger deal. And like, it really feels like the beginning of the, obviously the, the beginning of the, the boom period, which I think most people would put 2012 as the beginning of their boom period. But, but we're getting there, basically. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. Uh, let's go through the card here. We begin with. Uh, Segigun, which was uh, Yuji Nagata's group. So here it's Mitsuhide Hirasawa, the uh, the future Captain New Japan, I believe. Yes, Captain New Japan. So, so uh, Hirasawa, Super Strong Machine, and Wataru Inoue beating Jushin Thunder Liger, Koji Kanemoto, and some kid named Kazuchika Okada. Uh, 459 there. wonder what happened to him. Yeah, I don't know. IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Titles. Uh, Apollo 55, Prince Devitt and Ryusuke Taguchi defeat uh, Averno and Ultimo Guerrero from CMLL in 907 to retain the titles. Then we get a title change here. The IWGP Tag Titles, the heavyweight belts, a three-way hardcore match. No limit to Tsuya Naito and Yujiro defeat Team 3D, the current champions, Brother Devon and Brother Ray, and Bad Intentions. Uh, Giant Bernard and Carl Anderson in thirteen twenty eight to win the belts. But this, I believe, was when they they just kind of suddenly came back from an excursion overseas, like in Mexico, and they're just like, yeah, they're heavyweights now, and now they're going to win the belts. It was like very sudden. Uh, you know, it wouldn't last very long though because uh, 
Naito would end up getting kicked out of the unit and, uh, you know, start his feud with Yujiro and Chaos. Because they came back as Chaos members, and I believe they get kicked out towards in like mid-2010, let me say. They get kicked out. Oh, no, not. I'm sorry. They get kicked out in 2011. What am I talking? Or Naito gets kicked out in 2011. Never mind. So he's in. they're in chaos all year in 2010. And then right after they get back from uh, the, that U.S. tour, the Invasion tour that they ran with Jersey All Pro Wrestling, uh, Naito Yujiro turns on Naito May 26, 2011. Which, you know, and then he brings in, uh, he brings in, what's his name? Why am I blanking on his name? The ECW the guy. <laughs> I'm really blanking on this guy's name. You don't know who I'm talking about, do you? No, I do not. <laughs> uh, God, why can I not remember this guy's name? The first ever never openweight champion. <laughs> he was. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, you know, you know when I just you just can't. Okay, Masato Tanaka. Tanaka. Yeah, my entire my brain was saying Masahiro Tanaka, who I believe is a baseball player. So <laughs> that was I'm like that one of these moments. What's, it's one of those moments where if you had an app put me on a spot, I probably would have gotten it. He put me on a spot. It's like I don't know either. Yeah, like people know. have never had to pod- when, that moment when you're people have never podcasted before. When like you know you know this, but for some reason your brain just won't bring it up. Like, right. and like you, you just keep imagining everybody yelling at their phones. Masato Tanaka, you idiot. Why do you host a podcast? But yeah, I just could not. I really was about to say Masahiro Tanaka. I'm like, no, that's a picture for the New York Yankees, I think. But uh, not anymore, actually. I think he went back to Japan. If that's even his name. I don't know. If that's his real name. <laughs> I think it is, actually. I think mm-hmm. Masahiro Tanaka is a picture. But anyway, yeah. So he, Yujiro brings in Masato Tanaka and they, uh, they form the complete players. All that kind of stuff. Anyway, so, but here they win the tag titles on this show. Oh, and he's in the next match. <laughs> I could have just looked down the next match. Oh my God. Masato Tanaka and Tajiri defeat Akiboto and Yuji Nagata in 937. Why the fuck didn't we get that match? That sounds amazing. Masato Tanaka and Tajiri against Yuji Nagata and Akibono. That sounds, <laughs> that is the match I wanted to have gotten. Uh, the next match, I mean, this sounds cool on paper, but the the legends here could barely move. Uh, Manabu Nakanishi, Masahiro Chono, Ricky Choshu, and Terry Funk defeat uh, Chaos, Ishii, Yano, Izuka, and their one-night-only partner, Abdul the Butcher, who really... Wow. In Re- 2010. Wow. <laughs> 852. That, you, trust me, you don't want to see that one. I, I didn't say I wanted to. I'm just... Wow. Yeah. Uh, then we have the start of our New Japan versus Noah stuff here. Togi Makabe defeats Mohamed Yone in only 539. Uh, Naomichi Marafuji defeats Tiger Mask in 1414 to win the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title. Uh, we get the match we got, which was Hiroshi Tanahashi beating Go Shiozaki in 1904. The semi main event, the GHC Heavyweight Champion Takashi Sugera uh, beating Hiroki Goto to retain his title in 2054. Uh, and why Sugara joked recently he didn't want to face Goto again. <laughs> we faced him this match on the New Japan Noah show coming up, I should say. Uh, he faced him this match. I believe he also faced him in a couple of tag matches, too. And then we got the main event, the IWGP heavyweight title. Shinsuke Nakamura retains against Yoshihiro Takayama in 1551, which I remember that match being pretty awesome. But I guess we'll see. But when we, oh, no, wait. I think of their much earlier match, actually. <laughs> like the uh, I don't know if this one was awesome because this was pretty late for Takayama, but like. They had a match in like, I don't know, like 2003, 2004 or something. That that was awesome. I don't know about this one. Uh, 
Anyway, uh, let's get into our match here, which was Tanahashi and Go, uh, which I'm quite happy we got because this match is awesome. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else you would have rather have gotten. Maybe that, maybe that tag match, like I said. I'm I'm pretty satisfied with what I got, honestly. Yeah. So I do love, by the way, the nonsense English name for this match, which was uh, New Japan versus Noah Battle Effusions. Is that even a word? It's like E F F U S I O N. I assume that is a word, but what the fuck does it mean? Uh, an instance of giving off something such as a liquid light or smell. A massive, a massive effusion of poisonous gas. Gas is an example sentence. Okay. <laughs> That's, it's called New Japan versus Noah Battle Effusions Radiance. Radiance. Yeah. Because they're they're both like, you know, both very pretty. I mean, that really is the reason. The, the a lot of this match, like the, the mat the build here for this match uh spent a lot of time focusing on the, the idle good looks of both wrestlers here and like, you know, uh, targeting female fans that have been a huge part of Noah's success in the mid 2000s and uh, would arguably be an even bigger part of New Japan's success that was to come, you know, in the 2010s. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not going to argue it. They're kind of pretty in this match. So. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 I wouldn't disagree. <laughs> so we've got Go Shiozaki already in the ring for uh, theme music copyright reasons. But we do get Tanahashi's entrance, uh, of course, coming out to Love and Energy here, which is an all-time great theme song. I mean, I, I love this current theme, too, but uh, Love and Energy is a This theme, theme is so wonderful. Yeah. Uh, we start out with some lockups. They do some chain wrestling. They go back and forth from the mat. Uh, Tanahashi eventually starts targeting Go's leg. He starts giving it drop kicks in the corner. Uh, and stretches it against the ropes and you know all that kind of stuff. Go kind of blows off the legwork though. He just kind of runs around, even hits a super kick during his comeback. I'm mostly okay with it. It's not like Tanahashi is working on his leg for that long, but I don't like that he starts limping a little bit after that. Right after it was fine during the comeback, which I always say that's worse than blowing it off entirely. But he doesn't really go back to it after that, so so it's really not that big a deal. But uh, you know me though, I'm, I'm the nitpicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> then go, go, uh, go is fine again. He starts hitting a bunch of uh, running chops in the corner, and like one in each corner. Then he he's at this point really leaning into the uh, Kobashi style neck chops even more than he does today. So he puts Tanahashi down with them just before the ten minute call. He misses a knee drop off the top, which allows Tanahashi to come back with a big flying forearm for a two count. And there's a big exchange where Go just like drops Tanahashi with this huge German suplex. He hits a chop and then goes for the roaring chop. But Tanahashi counters with a slap to the face. Go comes back with a super kick. Tana no-sells it and finally hits Sling Blade to put him down. That was great. That was awesome. Uh, Tana and Go, they fight to the top rope where something happens. I don't, I don't, like, I really was not sure what they were going for here. I had to rewind and watch it a few times. Basically, Go has Tanahashi in his arms on the top rope, like in a power slam position. He sort of spins him around in midair as he leaps off of them, and they crash to the mat. Now, I thought they were, I guess he was going for a spinning slam and just kind of almost dropped him, and it made it look like Tanahashi was countering at first, but it's clear, when, who, based on who sells, you know, Tanahashi is the one who sells when they land, that that was not the case. He was not countering. So, uh, you know, you could tell this was not not a great 
spot. I mean, I wouldn't quite call it a botch because they did land okay, but like it looked weird. And the crowd didn't react very loud for it after they'd been kind of building up for the anticipation of the spot. So I think they the crowd knew it didn't look that great either. Uh, they quickly move on, though. Go gets a very nice running lariat for a two count just after the 15-minute call. He follows up with a moonsault off the top for another two count. And he tries to set Tanahashi up for the go flasher. Tanahashi blocks. They trade some more blows. Tanahashi ducks a huge chop from Go. He goes for the dragon suplex. And he turns it into the capture German when Go breaks his grip. And he gets a two count off of that. Uh, Go, though, comes back with more lariats, including this huge standing lariat. Gets a very close near fall. That was an awesome lariat. And the crowd's going absolutely nuts by this point. Uh, Go tries to set Tana up for the Go Flasher again. Uh, then he sort of, Tanashi tries to counter, Go kind of rolls right through the counter, deadlifts him straight up to try for it again, but Tanahashi escapes, it's a dragon suplex, uh, dragon suplex hold for a very close near fall, he goes for, he hits the sling blade, uh, but Go no-sells it, so Tanahashi comes right back with a drop hit to the leg, nice little callback to earlier, I guess, hits a Michinoku driver, which is a movie definitely doesn't do anymore, and then he hits two straight high fly flows, and that gets the pin. This was fucking awesome. You know, stupid little top rope move, whatever aside. Uh, this just edges out Nagata Takayama for five, my favorite match of the episode. I'm going four and a quarter here. Uh, this, I mean, Tanahashi, he's still a year away from the start of his signature 2011 title reign. The one that Okada would, of course, end with the famous Rainmaker shock. But he still felt like the ace at this point. I mean, he was... You know, they were already calling him that, I think, anyways. It doesn't, you know, but he was awesome. Uh, Go was awesome here. I mean, this was just an awesome match. I went four and a quarter as well. I love this match. I love both of these competitors. I I just really loved, like, even just Tanahashi coming down to the ring just felt awesome. Just how he just had this little boost of energy just coming down to the ring. It's like, oh, Tana, you're so amazing. And then, you know, I snapped out of my little fairy tale days and watched the match. And, um, it was just great stuff. Like, like the spinning slam thing was weird, but they don't let it, you know, they don't let it deter them. They just get back up and they just keep going at it. You know, they just keep the match going. When things don't work out, that's what you do. You just keep the match going. You know, you don't let it, you don't let it, you don't let the fans see that it didn't work out. Exactly. That's, that's, that's the worst thing you can do is bring attention to it. Yeah. Um. So they don't do that. So it's an excellent match. It's, the best match we got, which admittedly doesn't say a lot because of some of the matches we got, but this is genuinely great. I mean, this group honestly was a lot better than the last couple of Richard like groups I got. Oh, so I mean, the cream of the crop. Great. I mean, we got we got two four star matches, a four and a four and a quarter, uh, a three and a half, and then like for two like three star matches that were fine, and only one like you know below average match you gave two i I think think maybe 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 i shouldn't be making it sound like we got bad matches much they're there matches yeah we got some matches that were just there but like compared to the the starcade episode and the halloween havoc episode we got some real crap well that's that's your survivor series too that's your mistake you did halloween havoc and survivor series episodes (laughs) but you set yourself up for failure there i'm sorry the the randomizer has not been kind to us lately but it was it was on this episode i like i like this group of matches and, and to be fair, it ended with a great match. Yeah. So, there you and go. two wrestlers that, you know, two two wrestlers that, you know, went on to continue doing amazing things. So, yeah. Well, I, this is fun. I love doing these Tokyo Dome ones. I think we'll, we'll definitely come back to it. Maybe we'll do another one in January to celebrate the Tokyo Dome. I don't know. That'd be nice. I, I, I really enjoy these. And, you know, there's just so many dome shows. 
And we've obviously only, we've done now uh, 18 of them and there's still a million more that we could do. So, you know, lots of really fun times. Just remember every, every one of these, you do do dome shows. you have a chance to get that, you know, eight person match? <laughs> well, no, now I don't. Cause remember I, once I do it, once I get one match from a show, I take it off. That's right. Ooh. So yeah, we, we dodged well, dodge well, that bullet. The randomizer will find a way. <laughs> the ran, We dodged that bullet already. It's gone. Until I do every single dome show on one of these roulette episodes and have to start over. We have, we have dodged that ultimate Royale. Maybe I should just, maybe I should, maybe just, maybe just to annoy Rich, I should do with like a 1400 word article just on that match. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it is so horrible. I, it yeah. sounds the moment you start listening to competitors, I'm like, oh god! Wow! And then the fact that they're all fighting at once in four separate singles fights, it's like, okay. Anyway, <laughs> it's really let's move on before I before yeah. move on before I convince myself this is a good idea. <laughs> uh, all right, folks. So, uh, Jerry, anything you want to plug before you get out of here? Yes, um, I'm going to plug my book, The Ordinary Life of Gerard Irving. It's on Amazon.com. It's my first published book. I am very pleased and happy with it. So if you would like to take a chance to purchase it, it's $9.99 paperback and $1.99 Kindle. Um, like I said, on Amazon, it's the easiest way to find it. Just search The Ordinary Life of Gerard Irving, and it should pop up if Amazon does what it's supposed to do. If you want lukewarm takes, transgender stuff, and other topics, I will warn you right now. Um, you can look me up on Twitter at Dejerius underscore Jer. Let me make sure I actually give you the right Twitter link because I'm very inconsistent with that. Um, yeah, Dejerius underscore Jer. I'm right for once. And as always, you can find me on VoicesOfWrestling.com writing about a lot of stuff wrestling related. Thank you. All righty. So, folks, uh, of course, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Russell Omakase. Uh, Wrestling would not fit. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Yes, folks, who are not every other week this time. You're getting two episodes in a week. I know you're very excited. Uh, we're back on January 1st for our annual year-end awards episode. So uh, lots of guests on that one usually. I'm sure there will be again. Uh, so, I'll, you know, still got to put that together. But uh, there we go. January 1st. Uh, 2022, a new year will begin and we'll start with our 2021 year end awards, the fifth annual, I'm not going to say year end awards. So definitely tune in for that. And in the meantime, thank you as always for listening and I will see you next time.